Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Art, one of the many fantastic podcasts on the New Books Networks. I'm your host, Ricarda, and I'm here today to talk to Stephen Luber about his latest book, Inside the Lost Museum, Curating Past and Present, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. In his formidable study, Stephen gets to the heart of what makes museums so interesting to both love and critique. In Stephen's view, the complex nature of the museum lies in the balancing act a curator and other museum stuff must strike in both displaying a collection while resisting the temptation to engage or even force a certain way of looking or behaving among visitors. In this podcast, Steve and I talk about how open storage could have the potential to counteract this complexity. We also talk about power dynamics within the museum, the gatekeepers, so to speak, be they human or otherwise, that have the ability to make museums both more or less accessible. We talk about the museum gaze and what it means to privilege the visual over other sensory experiences when engaging with objects in a museum. And as we go along, we discuss the history of museums more generally, from cabinets of curiosity and the Victorian model all the way to the contemporary. And now, please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Art. I'm your host, Ricarda, and I'm here today to talk to Stephen Luber about his new book, Inside the Lost Museum, Curating Past and Present, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. Welcome to the show, Steve. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Could you start out by introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm a professor at Brown University. I teach in the American Studies Department, uh, and I also teach in the Public Humanities Program here. Uh, Before I came to Brown about 12 years ago, I was a curator at the Smithsonian Institution. And while I've been at Brown, I was the director of the Huff and Reffer Museum of Anthropology. Great. Thank you. And now tell us how you came to write Inside the Lost Museum, Curating Past and Present, please. Sure. I've always, for years now, wanted to write a book about the the work of museums, um, what they do, why they're more interesting than they might appear to be from the outside, uh, to something to to, to uh, expose something of of the workings of a museum to people who might just assume that what they see when they walk into a exhibition hall is all there is to the museum, and not they might not think about all of the decisions that went on behind the scenes. Uh, but I never could quite figure out a way to pull that all together to turn it into a good story. Uh, about four or five years ago, I worked with a group of students and with an artist, uh, Mark Dion, who uh, together we did a project about what came to be called the Lost Museum, the uh, Jenks Museum of Natural History and Anthropology here at Brown University a museum that existed just for a short time, really, from the 1870s to the 1890s, uh, and then uh, closed down, and most of the objects in the museum uh, were were thrown out, taken to the university dump. And that project made me think about what museums really were, what they did, what decisions were made. Um, it made me look at museums in a new way, uh, working with an artist 
especially one as, as smart and insightful as Mark Dion can do that. And so I ended up using that story of this one very insignificant, uh, but in some ways typical small museum to get at the bigger questions about what museums are and what they do. And what I ended up doing was using that as a armature, as a framework to um, think about what museums did. And then I could start with that story and then go anywhere with it to talk about the past, the present, the future. Uh, but it, it made a, a good narrative structure. Absolutely. Thank you. And I hope we get to talk about Yang's museum a bit more throughout the podcast as well. Um, now, you divided the book into four parts, each containing several chapters. And these four parts are collect, preserve, display, and use. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about why you decided to structure the book in this way. Sure. I, I had a hard time coming up with uh, a way to think about museums that sort of included everything that they did. Um, one of the things that you and your listeners might realize from that set of categories, collect, preserve, display, and use, is that it is a rather object-centered way of looking at museums. Uh, you collect things, you preserve things, you display things, and then you use them. And that's one of the centerpieces of the book is that um, I'm making a case, an argument for objects as being central to the work of museums and putting it in those categories um, were basically ways to think about objects and then how to move beyond objects in the last, in the last section. The, the notion is that everything you see in a museum is has a story behind it. It was collected, it was taken care of, it was preserved, um, it was put on display in some particular way, and um, it was useful to someone in some way. And so my thought was I could put objects at the center, but expand beyond, beyond objects by structuring the book in that way. And I think you already mentioned this just now. Um, it's also that kind of, you know, you put the, the object in the center um, and yet there's this kind of dispute between whether a museum should put the object first or the visitor first. And, um, and if I might quote you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you say, you know, the, the, the ideal is to kind of combine the two. And that's really what you do in the book, I think. Yes, I, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I want one of the, the questions that lots of museum writers have addressed is how do you move beyond being just about objects? Um, and some have moved so far as to be almost to not pay much attention to the objects. Museums are social spaces in which you can do interesting things. And the, the formulation that I like is that Museums are social spaces with objects and people. And if you can think about all the various ways that you can have those objects be useful to the people, um, it becomes uh, a much more interesting kind of place that is 
something that museums uniquely can do uh, that takes advantage of what I see as their great strength, which are their collections of objects. Hmm. And we'll talk about one way of um, of collecting uh, with a crowd in a bit. But before we go on to do that, we'll jump right into the first part of the book, uh, Collect. Um, and here you talk about the practices of collecting, be it curatorial ex Editions, gifts, long-term loans, auctions or purchases from dealers or even eBay um, and others. You also talk about the shifting power dynamics within the museum, the hierarchies and the structures and the rise of the curator as a profession and authority on the collections. Uh, rather than museum trustees, for example. Um, but that was not always the case. And so I would like you to talk a bit more about these debates during the 19th century, at least in the case of um, America, and the more recent development of the curator as a profession. Sure. It's an interesting question. Uh, who actually has authority in museums is something that has been debated, well, as long as museums have been around. Um, the notion of curators as professionals that should be given responsibility, that should take responsibility for collections, decisions, is um, has been fought over for a long time. Um, the stories that I tell, one of the, my favorite stories, is a debate that happened at the American Association of Museums meeting in, I think, 1908, when uh, there was a big debate. And the title of the debate was Curators, Born or Made? That is, could you learn to be a curator or was it just something natural that some people had? Uh, they were true collectors. They knew how to collect. Um, and the big debate there is what, what did you need to know to be a curator? What, what kind of expertise went into collecting? Um, and there were those who wanted curators to be academic and professional, um, to have first and foremost subject matter expertise, whether in natural history or art history. Um, and then there were those who saw, saw this as a profession that was really, you could only learn on the job. Uh, which was how many curators early on learned it. They would start uh, working in a museum as an assistant or as a, um, they built their own collection as an enthusiastic amateur. And those are the people who were hired for museums. In natural history museums, uh, as they became, became more scientific, the notion was that you should go and you should have a PhD in whatever your field of science was, and then you would be a good curator. In art museums, there was a lot of debate about what kind of background, uh, what kind of person should be uh, curated in an art museum. And uh, the big debate I'd like to set up is between Paul Sachs, who was at the Fogg Museum of Art at Harvard University and who started the Harvard Museum Studies Program, the first, one of the very earliest museum training programs. Um, he was a great collector himself, but he was also a believer in art history as being the, the real center of what art museums should be about. 
uh, that you should be trained both in art history generally, but also in um, uh, the, the methods and tools of, of curatorship. Uh, everything from how to practically run the museum building to being a manager to uh, knowing how to deal with um, dealers, art dealers, and that kind of thing. So he wanted a very professional kind of training for the curators at museums. Um, the, the other side of this were the people who saw curators as being um, really, what was most important was to be a connoisseur, to really be a um, an expert and a person with a great eye, a great vision, somebody who could go and simply know what the right thing to collect was, what the right kinds of, of um, materials were, you know, a great connoisseur didn't need to be trained in, in school. Uh, the example that I like to use, the sort of the, the foil to Sachs in this case, is Benjamin Ives Gilman. Um, Benjamin Ives Gilman was a curator for a while at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and then a director for a short time, but spent about 20 or 30 years there uh, arguing against museums as places that should be run by art historians, but for museums as places that should be run by connoisseurs, by people with a great eye for art. Uh, he wasn't trained as an art historian. He was trained as a psychologist. Uh, he was a collector. And he he's best known, I think, today for two things. One is the idea of museum fatigue, about how tired museums are. But more importantly, for the idea of introducing the idea of docents. Uh, and the way he set that up is sort of revealing about the ways he thought about what museums should do. Um, uh, docent is somebody, he wrote, who is a friend of the art and can help you become a friend of the art too. So it's not about teaching people. It's not about um, being an expert and lecturing at, at the visitors like a professor might do. It's much more about um, being a friend of the art, being a connoisseur, having a good eye. Uh, that, that's, the, that's that early debate about expertise. Uh, it's fought over in another way as well, the debate over whether curators or trustees of museums should pick the art. Um, early museums, the curators were very much advisory. Um, it was very much more the trustees, the, the rich uh, people who were putting up the money for the museum, they would be the ones who were uh, really responsible for deciding what should be in the museum. Uh, over the course of the 20th century, as uh, curators professionalized, as museums professionalized, that changed to today where it's very much the individual curator's uh, job to decide what should be collected by a museum. And yet, would you say the trustees have little or no say, despite, uh, for the most part, providing the funds? <laughs> Well, this is, this is, of course, an ongoing question. Um, according to American Museum Ethics, the museum trustees have 
final say in this sort of thing, fiduciary responsibility. And so many museums, the curators will work very hard to collect, decide what, what should be acquired. They will make an official uh, recommendation to the board of trustees and the and to the director of the museum and the board of trustees. And the official decision is in fact made by the those trustees. In practice, with very few exceptions that I know about, curators pretty much can have final say in, in collecting. Um, they pretty much get what they want uh, if they can find the money for it, of course, and if the trustees don't find something too controversial. Uh, but the, that battle has mostly been won. Curators are professionals. Uh, they're given a lot of authority, a lot of authority in museums, mm. and yet um, this authority might be um, contested today. And this is something you talk about. You end the chapter with basically, a, a, or the part of the first part of the book, collect um, by proposing a rather different kind of collecting practice, one in which it is no longer the curator, as I said, um, who functions as a gatekeeper of what it is of what is to enter the museum and what not, but rather the crowd. Um, while not a new phenomenon, crowdsourcing has taken on new meanings in the internet age. And so I would like you to talk a bit more about crowdsourcing in the museum context and maybe also whether you believe it to be a valuable surrogate for the role of the curator. Yes, okay. So it's, 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 an, interesting, it's an interesting question how the internet and other ways of thinking about crowdsourcing uh, decision-making has shaped museums. And there are certainly a few museums who have tried to use social media to decide what to collect, um, whether to asking for advice or simply to collect via social media. So a lot of the digital online collecting of, say, in the United States around the 9-11 disasters um, does that become, uh, instead of a curatorial uh, decision-making, do you just say, we'll collect everything in an internet way? Or do you ask for advice and then build on that advice to, to, to shape your collections? Um, I think that even in those cases where curators have tried to crowdsource, there still tends to be, maybe there has to be, a, um, an authority to decide how to set up those questions, how to actually follow through on those crowdsourcing of advice. Uh, so that, that's one thing that has shaped and, and will continue to shape the curatorial authority. The other, which maybe is even more interesting, is the ways in which the communities, the cultures being collected are more and more involved with the work of collecting. In the United States, Uh, Native American collecting is now very much a process of working with communities to think about uh, how they'd like to be represented, uh, what kind of, of artifacts belong in museums, what don't belong in museums. Uh, and we can talk more about this when we get to the, towards the end of the book, but a lot of, of Uh, work that museums do now is not the we're from the museum, we're here to collect this thing and take it away, but rather how can museums work with 
communities, uh, source communities where objects come from, or with visitors who will be looking at things with audiences in order to uh, make an ethical and useful kind of collecting that uh, doesn't always happen when you have simply a, an expert trying to decide what to collect. Mm, great. Maybe this is a good moment for me to um, quickly ask about John Whipple Potter Yanks and how he uh, collected. So, Could you so say a few Professor Yanks uh, was, in some ways, a model of the old-fashioned curator. Uh, he started off as a well, his specialty was anthropology. Uh, his within that, his real specialty was birds and small mammals. And he became very famous in the world of mid-19th century natural history collecting as the man who collected 500 small mammals for the Smithsonian in the 1850s. Uh, he, the Smithsonian had put out a call for mice and other varmints, as he called them. And uh, he had all of his students go out and collect mice and capture them and sent them to the Smithsonian. Um, he was a field collector in the way that natural, historian, natural history curators were and many still are. Uh, he'd go out with his traps and his guns uh, and go on expeditions and collect large numbers of animals, both for the research side of museums, the science side, but also for display. Uh, he wrote a book called Hunting in Florida uh, where he describes his his expedition with a few other uh, collectors and uh, assistants to the Florida Everglades, uh, to the Okeechobee Swamp in Florida, rather, and he's there to uh, to you know find the exotic animals and bring them back. And in a few cases, he goes and visits the the native peoples there, the Seminole tribe and buys objects from them for, for the museum and for the Smithsonian. So that's sort of the, the old-fashioned way of doing it. Um, go out and shoot the animals you need and bring them back for the museum um, or buy them. Uh, then he also, in, in the museum, the other place that he got his um, collections were from gifts. The, the museum, the Jenks Museum, was at Brown University. And lots of alumni, especially those who were missionaries in Africa and Asia, would send back things that they thought were exotic, uh, what, what they called in the 19th century curiosities. And he would put those on display. Uh, and the, those, so the, the Jenks Museum is a good example of, of the ways in which you collect uh, from gifts, from purchases, uh, from field expeditions, all of those um, kinds of objects that uh, all the kinds of objects he wanted, he, he figured out how to acquire. There's one other way that he collected that is something that's sort of been lost in museums today, but is one of the things I think is worth thinking about as a perhaps something we should do more of again. Uh, in the 19th century, museums would transfer objects uh, between museums much more readily than they do now. So one of the ways that the museum at Brown got started was with a transfer of collections from the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian had what they called museum starter kits that they would give to universities. A group of a few dozen, um, mostly ethnographic objects, but also uh, natural history objects. And a 
university or a small museum could ask for some of these objects, and the Smithsonian would ship them a box full of things as a way to democratize the, the collections of, of the country. So there are lots of ways that we collect today. Uh, Jenks was also collecting in all of those same ways, um, but in a uh, rather different context. So some things we can learn from, uh, like perhaps those transfers, some things probably best that we uh, not go back to, like the, the poor record keeping that, that, he, that he did for his collections. And that's the perfect way for us to start, start talking about the second part of the book, uh, which is all about the preservation of collections, cataloging, storing, conserving, etc., to name but a few of the things happening behind the scenes, so to speak, that uh, most museum personnel are occupied with on a day-to-day -day basis, really. Um, but now, whether you have never been to a museum, say, uh, have been before, or even if you are an avid museum goer, the likelihood is, is that very few of us ever get to see the storerooms, the backbones to a museum, if you will. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners more about the invention of storerooms, their purposes and the controversies around them. Yes, that was a good way of phrasing the question because the storerooms of museums are mysterious in, in, in no matter which side of, of, uh, of museums you, you look at them from. Um, if you ask typical museum visitors about how much of the collection is on display versus how much is in storage, most visitors imagine that almost everything that the museum has is actually on exhibit. And of course, the museum people know that um, almost everything that museums have is in storage. Um, natural history museums, 99.9% of the collections will be in storage. Uh, big art museums, 95% might be in storage. So there's the, the storerooms are behind the scenes. Uh, people don't think about them very much. Uh, and they're sort of an interesting challenge to museums. One of the things that isn't widely known, I think, is that the idea of the storeroom is a pretty recent invention. Uh, in the Jenks Museum in the late 19th century, basically everything that he had was on exhibit. Uh, the few things that he didn't have room for and that he hadn't gotten around to unpacking about, uh, he felt very guilty about those things. He thought they ought to be on display. But about that time in the 1880s, um, at, in London, actually, at the Natural History Museum, there was a new sense developing that there really should be two collections. There should be the public museum, the, the material that is available to everyone. And then behind the scenes, there should be the museum that was set up to be useful for scientists. So in a natural history museum, that would mean that taxidermied um, creatures were in the front where the public could see them. And they might be arranged in a way that made sense to the public, say by where they were from or what time of year uh, you might see them. And then behind the scenes, you would have not taxidermied uh, animals, but rather uh, the stuffed skins, the thing that was most useful for the scientist. And you might order them 
by evolutionary principles or by um, the ways in which that made sense for the, for the scientists who were studying them. Uh, the Smithsonian took this up in the 1880s and 90s. Uh, George Brown Good, who was the director of the U.S. National Museum at the Smithsonian, uh, talked about what he called um, the People's Museum, which was the, the organized part that was uh, designed for the public to come and visit, and the Students' Museum, the behind the scenes uh, where you could go and study things. And this, this idea moved to art museums in the early 20th century, uh, where many of the large art museums basically had two kinds of display. The Museum of Fine Arts, uh, on one floor, you could see all of the very best of their collections arranged with lots of space between the, the various paintings, say, and sculptures, and set up as exhibits. But then on the, in, the, in the lower level, uh, you could go and see tight-packed everything else. Um, it wasn't in storage as in off-site or, or out of sight, but it was designed um, to store things, but also to be open to the public. The Philadelphia Museum of Art uh, did the same sort of thing, and the director there made a point of saying, but we will never just close that off to the public, that, that secondary setting of, 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 the, of the art collections. Uh, but of course, that's what happened before too long. Uh, the storerooms became private. Uh, they became sort of only those from the museum were allowed into them. Uh, and they served a different kind of purpose. They were both research sites that curators and other scholars could go and do their work. And they were also uh, the place that took on another role that museums started to take, which was the idea that museums were places to store things forever. Uh, it wasn't about storing them for research or for essential exhibit, but just museums need the world needed a place where uh, objects would be just would be kept, and that's where the idea of deep storage comes. That you have things and you put them in crates and you put them far away in very safe places and they're just preserved for the sake of preservation. Um, storerooms are fascinating places and I think that's one of the one of the things I hope that readers will get from the book is that there is this depth of knowledge and understanding you can get in the storeroom that it's hard to get any place else. The, the collections are built to tell stories, to, to document the world, and seeing all of those things together um, allows you to understand them in a way that seeing a few of them uh, chosen to tell a story in an exhibit uh, just doesn't allow. And so you can really, and I, I came out of the book um, really a great fan of storerooms and started to think hard about how to make that experience of visiting the storeroom uh, more important for the, or more accessible to the average viewer um, to think about ways that visible storage might become a way of allowing uh, those museum collections to become uh, more useful to, to an even larger audience. Mm, very interesting. And I suppose digital databases 
do come in handy, even though they're definitely not a substitute to the actual visit to a storage room. Um, but let us move on to uh, to talk about uh, recording and keeping information about objects. Um, and and so, um, as you say, you know, in the book, an object without any kind of information can be rather useless. But today's obsession with information about the object, i.e., it's the, the metadata, um, rather than caring for the actual original is a problem. Um, and I would like you to talk a, a bit more about the paperwork that uh, sort of surrounds uh, museum practices today, um, or today's database inputting and searching um, in relation to the physical museum objects. So museums spend an enormous amount of time uh, keeping track of their things. And that's the essential to being a museum. If, if, it, if you don't know about your objects, if you don't know where they came from, uh, if you can't prove um, that you own them, that if you can't tell the, the, the stories of their histories, um, they're not useful objects for museums in the way that um, they would be if you had all of that data. So it's essential that museums keep track of things. Uh, Professor Jenks, like I mentioned, did a bad job of keeping track of things in his museum. Uh, we assumed that he had some sort of register, which is what most 19th century museums had, a big thick book um, with um, where he listed the objects as they came into the museum and maybe a bit of information about them. But those books, uh, we think, were probably burned in a fire that happened at the museum. Uh, each object in Jenks Museum had or should have had um, a, a tag on it. And we've seen we have many of these tags that did survive uh, that had a number um, that would relate it back to those catalogs of uh, those record books of what came in, had a name and the name of a donor, and sometimes a little bit more information as well. And those uh, that information really becomes, I shouldn't say equally important as the objects, but an essential part of the importance of those objects is that you know what they are, that you keep good records of things, um, that you be responsible for them. Uh, when you acquire an object, when a museum acquires an object, uh, you're basically agreeing that you're going to hold it forever or at least uh, you're going to act like you're going to hold it forever. Museums can get rid of things, of course, but uh, the way that you treat things is making the assumption that you're not going to get rid of them. So part of that means keeping the objects in good condition, and that's all about conservation and preventative conservation, keeping the conditions good. But it also means keeping track of them, uh, keeping them... Um, keeping a good database of them. And I'd argue in the book, um, it also means making them available. Um, like you say, the easiest way now is by making is to make things available is through the online database. Uh, and this has opened up museum collections in absolutely fascinating ways that I think we're still trying to figure out. Uh, traditionally, the only way that you could know what a museum really had was by going and asking a curator, asking to see the record books. Uh, that was fairly rare. 
now there's an expectation, and like I say, it's almost an ethical expectation, expectation that a museum will have the database of its objects online. They'll have a good bit, not all of the information they know, but a lot of the information they know about them available to anyone who wants to see it online. And they'll have pictures. Uh, there'll be a good way to search that database so you can find what you're interested in. And more and more, I think we'll see the expectation that those databases are linked so that you can, um, if you're a researcher studying some topic, you can simply type in the name of the object or the name of the maker or the collector, whatever your field might be, and discover a list of all of those objects in all the museums in the world. Um, the natural history museums are getting pretty close to this. If you're interested in, um, in searching for some particular species of animal and wanting to see what the museum collections are, uh, you can go online and, and pretty much do that. Um, for example, when I was trying to track down the various objects that Professor Jenks collected, um, I can go to vertnet.org um, and type in John Whipple Potter Jenks as collector, and I will see all of the various animals that he collected in museums all over the country. Um, I'm able to do research on that through those databases. So I think as those databases become more accessible and there's more information in them, uh, that will become an extremely important way that uh, museums are useful. That's interesting. And that's, um, well, yeah, I'd like to ask you a follow-up question about this. Also, coming back to the idea of kind of gatekeepers, um, because in, you know, in the internet age, there are other gatekeepers as well. And when we talk about initiatives such as um, Google Austin Cultures Project, you know, it's this kind of total information um, technology that we believe in today that, you know, it still reflects biases. And oftentimes museum collections, yes, they do digitize their collections, but then it's a, it's not 100% of their collection. For the most part, um, it's, you know, it's the highlights, say. And so there's another kind of, um, you know, another gatekeeper making the decision of what is to be digitized and what is what comes second rank. And, and so the audience, again, doesn't get to choose what they get to see. Yes, you know, you're absolutely right. There, there are so many gatekeepers in this. Um, so the initial one, you know, the curator decided it was worth saving and collecting for the museum. Uh, the cataloging is another way in which gatekeeping is done. The categories that are used for cataloging objects very much reflect the, the moments that, that they're created and, and done. So if you're interested in, in a whole range of objects that weren't of interest to, say, early 20th century curators, those objects aren't necessarily cataloged in, in a way that you'll be able to find them. Uh, who digitizes, how you digitize, what information is available, at each level, there are gatekeepers and cultural expectations that shape how that's done. Um, and I guess that's partly what makes museums so interesting is that the, well, that all of this kind of information that we've been talking about is metadata, that's the word that's used. Um, the metadata can never really capture the, the truth of the object or the truth of the collections. 
you can get closer, then I'd argue that better descriptions, more images, um, cataloging this done from more than one point of view, um, and just um, more and more available. That you know, eliminating that 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 you know as many of those gatekeepers as you can um, makes it better. It doesn't make it perfect, and it will always be culturally um, biased based on whoever did that collecting and cataloging, um, which doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means we have to think carefully about it and think about the ways that uh, we can be more open. Uh, one of the things that I think we've, we've learned just in the last decade or so is that the apparently neutral looking scholarship and collecting of museums is never really neutral. It always is shaped by, by politics and shaped by the experience of those who are the inside. And so thinking about how to open that up, uh, not just in exhibitions, but also in collections and access to collections um, seems like an important piece that is worth, worth, worth thinking hard about and worth putting effort into. Now, before we move on um, to the uses of objects, um, I'd like you to say a few more words about museum ethics. And I think we've already touched upon a few important points here. Um, but at times, let's say, uh, conversation, um, conservation, sorry, uh, does not allow for an object to be used or dis even displayed. Uh, could you give us an example, a short anecdote, maybe from your own personal experience as a curator, which brings to the fore the manifold ethical questions one needs to consider in museum practice today? Yeah, so ethics touches every part of museums. There's a narrow way of thinking about museum ethics, which is, um, I guess or I should say a traditional way of thinking about museum ethics, which is that museums are responsible for taking good care of their objects, uh, for making them available, um, for keeping them safe. Um, I'd argue that there's another kind of ethics that's important, which is they're responsible for using them wisely as well. Um, so museums talk about uh, different kinds of control over their collections, taking physical control, having physical control, taking good care of them, having um, intellectual control, uh, which means uh, knowing what you have, knowing where it is, um, taking good, um, uh, making good sense out of the, your databases and your and your records, and then there's also um, a kind of control that I'd call an ethical control. That's using them in a way that is appropriate to those objects. Um, in natural history museums, that might mean thinking about those objects as once living things. Uh, in anthropology, ethnographic museums, it means uh, honoring the objects in a way that honors the communities that they are from, that they represent. Um, and then there's a final kind of control, kind of ethics of uh, doing things, uh, keeping track of things um, in a legal, uh, ethical sort of manner. So there's 
one way to think about museum ethics that often will be uh, a good step in any ethical question is to think about transparency, uh, being very open about what you're doing, not hiding what you have, not hiding what you're doing. But the other is to think of what I call a, a sort of a responsibility to the object, a responsibility an ethics of the object that says that um, you should treat it in a way that honors it, uh, both its life before the museum and the life in the museum. Uh, that might mean for some objects like the ones you mentioned, uh, not displaying them at all, that they're simply too fragile. Uh, for some objects that are of um, cultural significance to indigenous peoples, it might mean only displaying them for those for those people, so for only certain certain groups. Um, it might mean, uh, but it also has, I think, the other other side of that ethics of the object is making them useful. And so for those objects that are um, in the museum, it means not simply hiding them away in the storeroom where no one can see them, but making them available. Um, this is an endless, an age-old debate in museums about um, accessibility versus preservation, um, going right back to the 19th century as museums and curators began to professionalize. Uh, George Brown Good at the Smithsonian uh, says something like, "No, no curator, no museum administrator should, no one should be allowed to be a museum administrator unless they are um, open to the." and eager to, to make things available to the public. Uh, so that, that, that balance, that balancing act between the objects and the audiences and the communities that came from, that, that is, to my mind, always an ethical consideration. Hmm. And this is a perfect way to move into the third part of uh, your book as well, which is about display. Um, so we move away from the back office, so to speak, and into the public face of the museum. So how the objects are used, displayed, conveyed, what stories they are to tell, in what way, and very importantly, for whom. Um, and I'd first like you to talk about the museum gaze. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what the museum gaze is, how it developed, and what some of the problems around it are. Sure. Um, so museum people today use this phrase, the museum gaze, a certain way that you're supposed to look at things in museums, look at the things on the wall. Um, and once, once you put it that way, everybody knows sort of what you mean, that you're respectful, you pay attention to the objects, you look at things in a particular order from one to the next. Uh, you're critical in a sort of art historical way. You're looking at it. You're not dashing through the museum. Um, and it's all about looking. Um, my argument is that that is not a natural way to deal with objects. Um, that, in fact, what we'd really like is to touch things, to, to really understand them. If you compare the way that you appreciate an object in a, in a department store, say, uh, when you're buying clothing versus looking at a display of clothes in a museum, you get a very different sense of what that object is if you can actually touch it, if you can see how it's made, if you can try it on. 
uh, all those things that you're not allowed to do in a museum. Um, the museum historians have, have tried to figure out where this came from. There's a general argument that uh, in the museum, the cabinets of curiosities, the Renaissance and uh, early modern cabinets that are one of the roots of the museum, uh, the whole point there was to walk in, to pick things up, to, to hold them, to, to taste, to, to, uh, to feel them. Uh, by the 19th century, though, as museums become part of a uh, Victorian, well, Victorian way of, of, of training people how to behave, of teaching people how to behave, uh, the do not touch signs start to go up in museums. Um, there's uh, a sense that you're teaching your visitors, which in Victorian museums were the, the working classes were, were a very wide swath of the public, uh, that the objects are more important than you are, that you're supposed to behave appropriately towards them. Uh, the notion is that this is a civilizing kind of approach. Once you get beyond touching and say, just for looking, uh, you get a very different sense of how you are supposed to behave in a museum and, and how you learn from objects. Uh, that, that's what the museum gaze is about. Um, it is based on, like you say, this uh, part of it is about the ways in which objects can be harmed if they're touched, but it's something more than that as well. It's just a certain way of behaving in a museum. Hmm. I would like to ask a follow-up question, which is what do you think we're losing um, when we don't get to use our other senses when engaging with objects? Well, that's a very good question. Um, we're losing a, a sense of their complexity. Um, if you're a, trying to understand, say, in a history museum, what it was like to, uh, say, ride in a carriage uh, as opposed to an automobile or to ride in an early automobile um, as opposed to a contemporary one, uh, those were complex sensory uh, experiences that required not just looking at things, but handling them, moving them, uh, having a, a, you know, a fully bodily experience. If you go to the Henry Ford Museum in, the, in Dearborn, Michigan, um, one of their interactives is you can go for a ride in a Model T. Uh, you can't drive it, which would be even better, but just that sense of these cars um, as something that you're in and that have a certain way of feeling the road, uh, you learn a great deal more about what that experience must have been like than seeing one on display. Um, the same thing would be true for certain kinds of um anthropological objects, if you were part of an experience with them rather than just seeing them on display. Uh, most of these things were never meant for display. They were meant to be used. And also to, to understand them fully, you would need to, to actually use them. Um, art objects, paintings are made for gazing at, for viewing, and so you don't miss as much there. But sculpture 
cries out for what does it actually feel like? What is, how is that done? And so you, you're missing something when you're not using all of your senses. Again, the balancing act is uh, it might be fine for one person to touch it. Um, in a museum, you can't do that. It's, it becomes, uh, you have to have rules that apply and uh, you can't have everyone uh, visiting the Met touching, touching all of their objects. So it's a balancing act, but it's worth thinking about when you look at an object in a museum, what might you also be gaining? Were you able to use it, to touch it, to feel it? Mm, or smell or other. Uh, or smell or taste. Taste, even. yeah. <laughs> um, and one last thing on this note. Um, what about, do you think that it's a different kind of visual experience um, when you see the, the physical object as opposed to um, looking at an object on screen? I mean, there are interesting kind of cognitive studies on what happens when you look at objects on screen as opposed to off offline. <laughs> Oh, yes, there's some wonderful changes that you get that, um, you know, if nothing else, the sense of scale, the sense of texture, um, the ways that you can walk around something in a museum uh, are all wonderful and essential to understanding the object. On screen, of course, you can often see things that are not on display, and you can have the close-ups. Uh, you can you can see different points, angles, different 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 images of it. Uh, there are trade offs there. Uh, I'm a believer in the real thing, uh, but not in the real thing. That, that doesn't mean I don't also appreciate the opportunity to be able to online see this funny glowing screen of my laptop with uh, with images from of objects that I'll never get to see in in real life. Um, the ways in which you look at things have been have 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 a history as well. Uh, Benjamin Ives Gilman, who I mentioned earlier, um, was trained as a psychologist and was fascinated by the ways in which you could control the way that museum visitors looked at things. Uh, he invented a device he called the skioscope that would allow you to really focus in on an object and to see it in a way that he thought would give it more depth, would make a painting seem to have more, um, by, by blocking out the glare, would, would give you a better view of it. Um, the ways in which objects are displayed in museums, you know, literally with a frame around them, um, are all ways to direct your viewing. Um, they, that, just like the what you see on the screen, is not natural in some ways. It's, it's very much also a technologically mediated uh, designed experience. And so they both, you know, there's something that you get out of each of them. Uh, neither of them is in any sense pure or true or accurate. Uh, so thinking about that balance is an important, uh, and what you gain and what you lose, I guess, from the various ways of looking at things is, is useful. Along the lines of an embodied experience, you go on to discuss collection and display in this part of the book. Given that you said how increasingly fascinated you've become by storage rooms, I was hoping you could talk a bit more about the idea of open or visible storage in relation to display. Sure. Storage, open storage or visible storage uh, was invented in the modern way probably about 40 years ago at the University of British Columbia Anthropology Museum, 
Uh, the notion there was we have all of these things, uh, we should let the public see them. And in the United States and in Europe, you have lots of different ways of thinking about visible storage and making things available. Um, the big question in visible storage is to what extent is it real storage and to what extent is it really curated exhibits in a format that sort of looks like open storage, that sort of looks like storage. Um, so there's lots of, lots of variations on the theme of open or visible storage. The thing that I like about it, and I haven't, I haven't figured out the right way to do it yet. I'm, like I say, I'm, I'm working on this now. I'm trying to figure this out. Um, is how to get the notion of secrets, behind the scenes, uh, hidden knowledge, um, all of those things that are in many ways the heart of the museum, the, the, the objects, the knowledge that people have about them, and reveal that to the public in a way that isn't teaching in, or lecturing or, or trying to convince the public of something, but of providing the evidence and the background to let visitors come up with their own ideas. And somehow it seems that saying, look, we have not just these 10 objects that we've ar arranged in a particular order to make an argument, but we have a thousand objects that you can arrange in a variety of ways to make different arguments. That seems like the key to, to revealing some of the complexity that's in the museum. Uh, open storage holds the promise to do that somehow. Um, how is still to be worked out? Many of the open storage projects that were done in the United States in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s have been shut down or have been rethought now. It turns out that they didn't find that right balance of telling a story and making evidence available. And many people found them confusing. Uh, they didn't know where to look first. They didn't come to the storage room with the sort of expertise or even the sorts of questions that a, an expert or a curator might bring to those storage rooms. And how to go to provide enough of a, of a, uh, a framework, enough of a structure, a set of questions that you might answer, as well as providing all that material evidence that's in the storeroom. That's the balancing act that needs to be, to be thought through. Um, I think it's possible. Um, and I think it's so important in part to make the case for having all these objects in the museum, in part to making the case that it's many stories that can be told with them, that there's not a single expert, the curator who determines the stories, uh, to let the objects, um, well, to let, to let visitors revel in the complexity of the objects and the collections um, seems like the right thing for museums to do. Uh, so there's a promise there. Um, I'm convinced it can be done. I'm just not quite sure the right balance to, to work on to make that work. 
You go on to talk about the use of uh, museums and, and collections as well in the fourth part of your book. Um, and here it seems to me, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong, that you draw parallels between the didactics of Victorian museums and the designed museum experiences today that are supposedly um, all about you or, and your journey, meaning the visitor. Um, and so I wanted you to elaborate a bit more on the similarities and differences of how museums are put into use today. Yes, that's a good question. Um, I do think that there's more similarities than we might want to believe or that we might hope that the, the, the basic Victorian notion that museums are places to um, well, indoctrinate is a strong word, but to educate, uh, to, to, to teach people how to behave, um, to teach people how to be good uh, citizens of a country or of an empire. Um, I don't think we're quite doing that anymore. But the notion that museums can be useful for whatever society, whatever culture uh, needs done I think is still very strong in museum uh, in museum in the museum world, so that um, anything that nobody else is doing uh, that seems to be important, museums step up to the plate and try to do it. In the United States, where uh, education is underfunded, where art education is is disappearing. Um, so many museums have said, we can take on that job. We can provide uh, programs for children. We can provide even the social services that are missing sometimes. So there's that sense of usefulness. The real question is whether it's the same kind of usefulness that um, in, is it as much a kind of... Um, convincing people how they're supposed to behave rather than allowing them to determine how they ought to behave based on the, the, the sort of free choice world of the museum. And that I think is, is an open question. Um, it's easy to be skeptical about museums as places where no matter what kind of, uh, no matter how good a job they say of, they talk about, being open to everybody, they're still very uh, restrictive places where you're supposed to behave a certain way. You're supposed to treat and respect and um, interact with the art or the artifacts in a certain way. So we still have that from the Victorian museums. We haven't gotten over that. On the other hand, we are trying to make museums a place where they're much open, much more open to a wider range of people where they're much friendlier, um, where you can get out of it what you want. And that's a, a, a tension that, that still exists. Um, sometimes that shows up in museums as a tension between educators and curators. Uh, sometimes it shows up as uh, a tension between traditional audiences and new audiences. Uh, how to how to balance that? How to be useful um, and not be uh, telling and not at the same time tell people 
this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're supposed to learn, uh, is a challenge. So I guess my hope is that because museum objects are these enormously complex things, they're not simple, they're never simple, and because the ways that people relate to objects, the stories that you can tell around objects are never simple, uh, if you combine those two things, you can say museums have the opportunity to be useful in many different ways to many different people. And the challenge for museums is to allow that openness, um, to not have it overwhelmed by the sense of we need to control this space and control these objects and control the ways you think about them. That's the tension that, that's so interesting in museums right now, I think. Mm. This ties in very nicely with a quote that I chose uh, by Max Holler, newly appointed director of the Met. He says, quote, museums these days are one of the few areas where you can have a complex cultural discussion in a non-polemical way, unquote. Um, now, there are many other formidable quotes in your book, um, and I would like you to continue to talk, I suppose, um, about whether you think this quote is an unfulfilled promise, maybe a utopia that museums uh, believe in, or whether you see truth in it. I suppose you've kind of answered the questions already, but still. Yeah, no, that's, that's it. And I guess I was, you, get, you got me thinking about this when you posed that question. Uh, when, you, when you offered that quote, the um, this is one of a very, very long line of museum directors or um, newly appointed directors coming in and making the case for why museums are important. Um, I'd like it to be true. Um, I think that it's more of a goal than something that's actually been done, uh, been accomplished. The two parts to that quote, uh, one is that um, the notion of a complex cultural discussion. I think that's something that museums can do very well. They don't always do it. Uh, there's a tendency to turn complicated ethnographic things into art in museums. There's a tendency to, to make a simple narrative historical story in, in history museums. Uh, or to, to tell objects, uh, to tell the stories of objects from one point of view. So the complexity is there. Uh, it's built into the objects and to the vast collections of objects. But we haven't quite figured out how to maintain that complexity um, in the way we present objects to, to, to visitors. Uh, the non polemical way is the other half of that story. There certainly are a lot of polemics going on in museums today. Um, it is a place that um, in some ways can step out of politics in the traditional sort of right-left politics. Uh, but it also, as the everyone is, is saying now, museums are not neutral either. So non-polemical um, maybe but it's not as though there's simply a level playing field. They have to have a point. They, they have points of view whether they want to or not. And so that's another part where, again, you're balancing the potential. It would be wonderful to have a place where people could talk in a non-polemical way. Uh, but you need to acknowledge, on the one hand, the complexities that don't always come across. 
And on the other hand, the, the politics that already exist in museums. Um, so I wish the new director of the Met well, and I think that's a, a fine direction to head in. Um, if we can think about museums as places for complex cultural discussions, that would be wonderful. Mm. Right. Um, we're moving into the very last part of your book, The Coda. Um, and here you review all of the four parts of your book, um, collect, preserve, display, and use, and talk about an artistic intervention, um, in particular, one done by the contemporary artist Mark Dian, um, an artist whose work is about museums, and you had invited him to the Jang Society for Lost Museums. So I would like you... Uh, to tell our listeners what you gained from working with Diane and maybe also what you believe museums can gain from having uh, contemporary artists engaged with their collections and the institution, the museum at large. Mark Diane, I have to give credit here. He was the one who turned my class into something called the Jenks Society for Lost Museums. Uh, he sort of turned that into an art project in itself. Uh, Mark is an artist who thinks deeply about museums and, and he writes, he critiques museums because he loves them. And I think that really shows through in his work and it showed through in the ways that we approach the, the, the challenge of thinking about this lost Jenks Museum at Brown University. Um, we had started in on some straightforward historical understanding of the of the of the museum. Um, what we got when Mark arrived was a sense of new ways to approach it, and also new ways to um, to present that material. Um, a historian looking at a museum. Uh, has a pretty straightforward way that you could think about it. There's a, you know, the, there's a chronology that you would think about. There's a, uh, you would try to to think about the context of the times. And Mark does all of that, but he engages it with it. Uh, he's not constrained so much by the the historian's way of thinking or the historian's way of presenting. Uh, one of the lines I like from one of Mark's writings is that artists can bring humor, irony, and metaphor to uh, to the work that they do in a way that scientists or museum curators or historians aren't really allowed to do. So he could help us make fun of the museum a little bit. Uh, he could see the irony in the in in that was embedded in this notion of a museum that was supposed to last forever and that only lasted for, for 25 years. Um, he allowed us to present it not as a written argument or a straightforward exhibition of, of facts, but as a reimagined or recreated space. Um, one of the things that he did that I never would have thought of uh, coming to this as a curator was to think hard about the categories that we would display the, um, the surviving objects from the museum in. I would have displayed them to tell a story about changing um, categories of knowledge. So what was anthropology, what was history, what was local, what was uh, international. Uh, Mark looked at it and said, if we display this by 
the degree to which they've decayed over their time since the museum closed down, we can tell a different kind of story. So he brought a, uh, an artist's eye to looking at uh, the, that material, that history. He also brought an art, artist's eye to the reimagining the museum. So, uh, so many of the objects were lost. Mark's instinct was to ask, ask artists to recreate them. So one of the rooms in our exhibition was a recreated uh, Jenks Museum uh, full of white paper mache uh, animals and ethnographic things that uh, we had artists recreate from the listings in, in the catalog books uh, in the various reports of the museum. So we had uh, a different way of looking about it, looking at it. I think probably the most useful thing I got out of working with Mark, though, is this sense that uh, you can both critique museums and love museums at the same time. And I think that's that shaped my way of thinking about the book uh, in significant ways. It really allowed me to say um, museums are wonderful places. Uh, they have enormous potential. They have great things to show. They have audiences. They have a, a way of looking at the world that, that is useful uh, in so many ways. Uh, but at the same time, they are falling short of, of so much of the potential that they have. Um, and that you can point that out, uh, not to say museums are bad and should return their objects and should close down, but they should live up to the potential of those objects and that knowledge and that audience and the, the way that people could talk about things in museums. And that's what I tried to do in the book. And you do that really successfully, as I think, and I hope many of our listeners um, will think as well. Um, thank you so much for talking to me about your book, Inside the Lost Museum, Curating Past and Present, Steve. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.